Welcome to the Nehemiah Entrepreneurship Community Podcast. I'm your host, Patrice Saguet. I'm here with uh, my good friend, Oz Hillman, and uh, we're going to be talking about the seven mountains of culture. And Oz is one of our keynote speakers for Nehemiah Week this year, coming up uh, in about two weeks or two weeks and two weeks and a half. And um, and this is the very topic that Oz will be addressing for. So we thought we'll have Oz come into the studio kind of give you a bit of teaser. We promised that last time who was here, and we've hopefully are going to deliver on that promise this year. I mean, this this time. First of all, Oz, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Great, Patrice. Always good to be with you, buddy. Thank you so much. Uh, well, first, Oz, uh, it's not your wife's birthday. It's yours. Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, you were talking about how you're feeling your golf game is improving and you're feeling like you're getting younger. <laughs> I said maybe wiser is more. So how are you feeling at the, at this young age? I feel good, man. I feel good. I'm finally an adult at 68, right? <laughs> well, better late than never. <laughs> well, as first of all, thank you for agreeing to be um, a speaker for us this year. You are known all over the world. I think I was telling you that, um, our friends in Kenya and Mexico and and, and um, Asia, you know, are all excited uh, because of, of 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 your involvement. Many of them have read your book. They receive uh, the your daily devotionals, and so today I want to drill into exactly what the seven mounts of culture is, because the assumption that we all make is that everybody knows what it is, mm-hmm. and and during one of our uh, business forums in Africa, somebody asked the question, what in the world is that? Mm-hmm. And so we want to use today to kind of educate our friends so that people know exactly what to expect when they come to Nehemiah. We, well, you, you'll be talking about and uh, and hopefully it'll, it'll help them a great deal. As I don't want to presume that everybody listening or watching exactly knows the breadth of your ministry. So let's start there. Tell me a bit about marketplace leaders and and kind of what that's all about. Well, Patrice, um, I um, had an ad agency back in the 80s from 1982 to 1994. And uh, we uh, served a lot of clients uh, like American Express, Steinway Pianos and Christian clients. Uh, The name of our company was the Aslan Group. But in 1994, I went through a major crisis uh, that I lost uh, major wealth. I, uh, my wife left me. My business got down to almost zero. And God used that time to transition me over the next seven years. Those seven years were very difficult, but it was a real training ground for me as he began to reshape me and remold me and really move me into what would ultimately become a new calling. And during that adversity, I would the Lord would show me that many believers in business have a difficult time integrating their faith life into their work life. And they also didn't understand how to navigate adversity in their life. And so those were the two things that he would teach me during those seven years. Seven years to the month, he would bring me out of my adversity. He would restore all of my finances in that time. And, uh, Little did I know he would birth an international marketplace ministry in which we would end up teaching leaders uh, this concept of what it means to manifest God's presence in the area of your work-life call. And so 
we've been doing that for over almost 25 years now and uh, God led me to start writing and teaching I've written 21 books and uh, spoken to leaders and equipped leaders in 26 countries and uh, little did I know how God would turn my valley of Acor into a door of hope for for me and many others and so today we we really help people in that area and then in the year 2000 I was first introduced to the concept of the seven mountains and uh, that seven mountains is really the history is in 1975 Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham met for the first time of course Lauren Cunningham founder of Youth with a Mission and Bill Bright founder of Campus Crusade at that time and God spoke to them in a dream uh, that week to both of them and said if we're going to sh impact culture it's going to have to be through these seven areas of government, media, family, education, business, arts and entertainment, and the church. And what we've since discovered is it only takes three to five percent of a leadership operating at the top of those cultural mountains to actually shift a culture, uh, cultural mountain, which can shift a, a culture in itself. Wow. That's incredible. What I love is that your ministry first is born out of your own life and business experience. Um, and so you're really helping people through your books, through your teaching and your speaking uh, from, from having been there and being restored. Um, and I guess that's why your message resonates so much with people because there's a sense of authenticity with it. There's a sense of realism with it. And it's practical. It's not just Bible theory, but it's really from, from hands-on experience. Um, you've made the Joseph calling or adversity a hallmark of your entire ministry. Uh, what have you seen in terms of how it's impacted people? I mean, I've heard folks who either read your book or heard you talk, and it's been it's, it's something that others re it resonates with them. Were you surprised? Have you been surprised by that, that many others have gone or are going through the same thing you went through? Well, I guess uh, what happened was that many people had the same experience that I had when I first came in contact with the concept of a Joseph calling. When I met my marketplace mentor, Gunnar Olson, from the International Christian Chamber of Commerce, uh, I met him two years into my adversity, and he said, when he listened to my story, he said, Oz, you have a Joseph calling. And I didn't know what a Joseph calling was. And he said, it, it's a marketplace call to be a spiritual and physical provider to others. And so he became my mentor during that time. And we're still in relationship today. He lives in Sweden. And so uh, as I began to teach that, I'm, my gifting is really teaching and communication. And so I was able to you know, write about it and teach about it and sh share it with others. And so as a result of that, I think many people who found themselves in the same place I was at that time, kind of looking for answers on why am I going through this adversity? I haven't done anything wrong. You know, I'm, I'm not in sin. Why, why would I go through this adversity? And so it really became uh, something that was a lifeline for people, just like it was a lifeline for me, I was just able to unpack it more 
as I learned more about it and sought God and, and really studied the process and met so many more, more Josephs around the world who said, yep, that's me, you know, and then uh, we, we wrote a, a lot about it, as I say. Awesome. We call it at Nehemiah and Biblical Entrepreneurship, the wilderness experience. Um, and that season of trial and tests where God allows based on Deuteronomy chapter eight to test you, to shape you and, and so forth. And of course, for Joseph, it was that pit, that prison, and of course, uh, the slavery. Uh, so uh, uh, let's talk about the seven mountains of culture. Now, um, are you surprised, by the way, that still it's not something that everybody know about, that it's still something that many folks still aren't clear what it is? No, I'm not. Uh, I think that, in fact, I was, um, I thought that, the season had been complete for that in in some ways because I wasn't seeing a lot of traction in the last few years, and then it reemerged two years ago, where we ended up doing a major conference of 350 leaders of leaders in Washington D.C. that were all leaders within those seven cultural mountains, and so you know some of the history for me was really looking at the life of William Wilberforce, who, you know, he um, had about 18 other individuals that he walked with. He was a wealthy, um, born into wealth in England. And uh, he came to Christ when he was 28 years old. And um, he thought that, well, if he was this passionate about God, maybe he was supposed to be a pastor. And, uh, John Newton, who was a converted slave owner, uh, became his mentor, and he came to him and said to him after he said that to him, he said, no, you are not going to be a pastor. You are going to be in politics, the government mountain. And he said, that is where you have the anointing, and that's how where God's going to use you. And that's exactly what happened. So what he did was he hung out with about 18 individuals that came to be known as the Clapham Group. The Clapham was just a city in England where they all lived. And they broke bread together, they went to church together, and they used their time, talent, and treasure to impact some of the social ills of England. Um, they affected 69 world-changing initiatives and abolished slavery after 30 years of work in England. And so here you have a, a government mountain that they were operating in, a very small contingent of people, but they had uh, influence in those areas. And so they really shifted that mountain, shifted the England. And so what we've discovered is that that small percentage of people, when they're operating together in relationship and using their time, talent, and treasure, uh, can actually shift a mountain. And the best case study we have of that in America is the gay rights movement. Here, one group of people that at the time probably represented less than 1% of the population has literally changed America's view from seeing a moral issue to seeing it as a civil issue. And the way they did that is they went in each of those cultural mountains and developed a strategy on how they would get America to view their issue differently. 
And as a result, we see what's happened today that gay marriage was passed in America. We've seen education being affected by this. We see laws changed. We see uh, the family structure being affected. We see businesses supporting uh, a what is to be is really a moral issue as being a civil issue. Once they were able to shift that issue from being a moral issue to a civil issue, they won the argument. Wow. The power of mobilization when it comes to these cultures. So let's kind of stay with that for a little bit. So for our viewers, the, the seven mounds of culture uh, include education, religion, family, business, government, arts, entertainment, and media. So right. uh, we're going to take them one by one, and then we're going to attempt for you to help our listeners without giving all the way this, without giving the entire stick away, uh, help our understand the importance of each of these uh, spheres. So let me start with education. Um, how important is that? What does that mean? And how important is that to, to social change? Well, education is a mountain that we currently have lost, you know, to the liberal agenda in our nation. Um, it's, we have a young people today. The reason they're believing in socialism is because they've been indoctrinated by liberal professors in all of these um, educational institutions. And because um, we have not effectively impacted that area, then we're seeing the results of that. So education is one of those areas that we need godly, righteous educators to come back into that mountain to be salt and light in that area. But we've got a lot of work to do there. Mm. Awesome. As a matter of fact, for those who are watching and listening out of Kenya, uh, this Saturday, uh, because of this very thing, uh, we are hosting a business forum. Uh, team, if we have the link for the uh, Kenya Business Education Forum, please put it in there. If you are in Kenya or East Africa, we're doing an education forum this Saturday. Uh, because we recognize that in Kenya, I don't know about other parts of Ethiopia, in Kenya, the the government has um, instituted that they'll be in uh, schools are not going to start until January, so they're going to lose a year of school. And as a result of that, uh, a lot of our members and students are Christian educated, they're on Christian schools, and so for a business that's based around students having to go to school, the government is saying they don't have to. As a matter of fact, if you educate students, we're not gonna count it. So that means, and so now we have to help our members and our clients repurpose. What do you do? Many are going to shut down because of that very fact. And so think about the number of Christian schools that um, not just in Kenya, but around the world, that will be hurt or harmed uh, because of these government-imposed policies around the world around education, which which will hurt uh, the, the game here. So, um, so, so the importance. I mean, I, I never 
and maybe I did intellectually, but never in my heart. Or never, I never made the connection between the worldview, the, the, the global worldview or the, U, the United States worldview to what's been taught in the schools and how uh, the wave of socialism, how it's directly tied to what's being taught in the school system. So in a sense, what you're saying, Oz, is how we teach our children, what we teach our children determines and drives how they behave, their political, it determines really their worldview in the world. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, when uh, there's a lot of research that shows once a, uh, a child goes on to college, uh, so much of their worldview begins to be affected because of the liberal, um, I mean, colleges today, secular colleges today are simply rampant with a worldview that's contrary to a Christian worldview. And they are remaking society and they're creating this anti-culture you know, cancel culture mentality. And so it's a very, it's very um, destructive on what's happening at the college level. Wow. Again, we're talking to Oz Hillman about the seven mountains of culture. And um, if um, you, uh, we, he's going to be our keynote speaker for Nehemiah Week. If you've not yet registered for Nehemiah Week, we want you to go to nehemiahweek.com, nehemiahweek.com. There you can register and join us uh, a week of transformational learning, connecting, and community uh, with us and many other speakers uh, from around the world. The week is August the 10th through the 15th. So education. By the way, Oz, um, uh, Frank, our Kenya director, is behind me. So Patrice, you've got to arrange for Oz to be a guest to my, uh, he does these, uh, these mountain altars. Or he calls them pre-altars. And so I'll make the introduction so that that way uh, uh, you can uh, see your available to see if you can, uh, uh, you can interview you on one of his prayer altar uh, discussions about the seven mountains. Uh, so Oz, I mean, so Frank, I just did it, man. You owe me one. Uh -huh. so, uh, Oz will be there for you. The next one is religion. So Oz, now as a Christian, I'm thinking, well, why is religion a distinct mountain? So what is this and why is it important? Well, there's two factors to that. Uh, let's call it first church in terms of the, the local church and the church at large. One of the real weaknesses we have in the church is that, you know, the local church has the greatest number of people in the seven mountains that congregate weekly. So a pastor has the incredible opportunity to equip his leaders for cultural change. Sadly, that is not happening. Sadly, many churches and pastors uh, focus their attention on building more programs inside their four walls of their church and getting those members to be volunteers for this or that, rather than equipping them for ministry in their own call. And that's the greatest weakness I see in the local church today, that we're missing out on a great opportunity. On the religion side, you see that religion uh, also is a mountain that's affecting things, uh, such as, um, you know, uh, radical Muslim faith, you know, and other faiths that are not based on Christianity, 
those have an effect on society. And so we have to recognize a religious spirit and its role in uh, causing havoc in a society. And so those are the core things. So, you know, I have a desire and passion for pastors to better understand how to equip their leaders. Uh, they have tremendous opportunity to impact the culture just by equipping their leaders. But sadly, many of them are not doing that. We did a an online series called Equipping the Church in the Workplace. You can find it at equippingthechurchintheworkplace.com. And uh, if you're a pastor watching this, I encourage you to check that out. It's a great teaching series to help you better equip men and women in the marketplace. Wow, I love it. As you were sharing about religion, the thought that came to mind is, you know, Christianity can also be very religious. So you dealt with the the past in the church being very inward driven, but could you address a bit about being more religious versus truly being a, a community of believers? Well, you know, the difference between true Christianity and religion is that you and I believe that our relationship with God is a two-way relationship built upon a relationship in which God answers prayer and we walk with him as our Lord and Savior. But religion says, I must do something to earn God's approval. Mm. So religion uh, turns it into a works thing and you don't experience the personal relationship with God. You primarily are doing things in order to earn your salvation, which we know is not possible in the scriptures. Uh, you know, it's all by faith and by you know, Jesus paying the price for us already. And so anytime we start getting into works and performance, that's when we know we've moved into religion and operating from a religious spirit. Awesome. Zamana says, wow. Zamana, thanks for having you. And again, if you're watching or listening, uh, you want to participate, you can ask questions of Oz about this idea of the seven mountains of culture. Uh, again, Oz will be our keynote speaker at Nehemiah Week this year. He'll be speaking on this very topic and within the context of uh, uh, growth through strategy. How, what's the implication of the seven mountain when it talks to when it comes to growing your business uh, through strategy and within the context also of a COVID-19 environment. What's the implication of Southern Mountains during this time? Go to nehemiahweek.com, nehemiahweek.com, there you can register for the conference and uh, and, and join us. Uh, so as the next uh, piece is the next mountain or the next uh, uh, key area of influence is family. So tell us, what does that mean and what's the implication there? Well, we see that taking place right now in America, where we see um, a group called Black Lives Matter getting a lot of visibility and so forth. But when you really look to the root of that organization, you find that it's a Marxist organization. And one of their tenets 
is not to support a family with a two-parent household that uh, allows the man to be the godly leader in that home. They disagree with that completely. They oppose the two-parent family. So here you have a, an organization that the name of it sounds great because we all want to affirm you know, what's been wrong in our nation and in correct things. But when you look deeper, you look under the hood, you see an organization that's an, a Marxist organization that's using uh, tactics that Martin Luther King would not agree with and is against the family. And uh, so um, the family is every cultural mountain has a family on it. You destroy the family, you destroy every mountain. And so it's important for us to recognize that, you know, God birthed the family and he made male and female. And he desired that every family have a mother and a father that could be a wholesome and righteous uh, model for those children. When you start destroying that, you start seeing the symptoms. Uh, the things that are going on in Chicago and Portland and many of the cities in our country right now where we're seeing so much violence. If you put all those young boys in a room and asked about their father, I'll bet you that 95 percent of them did not have a healthy father relationship. Mm. And so, you know, we can only deal with a lot of these things when we deal with the hard issue. And that is that uh, there has to be healthy families in order to see a healthy culture. Mm, wow. Well said. And, and unfortunately, the data statistic on that, it's, it's alarming. And, um, and as entrepreneurs, we, need, we must care. As Christians, as entrepreneurs, because unhealthy families also leads to unhealthy economies. Uh, good point. You do make an interesting uh, um, point there about the distinction between Black Lives Matter as a concept to affirm a people group and an organization, a legal structure that is called Black Lives Matter. Do most people recognize there is a distinction or is it's kind of blurred into together, isn't it? I don't think they have been. I think that's coming out more and more as I see you know, uh, in some of the, the media that's speaking truth as a whole, you know, aspect of the liberal media that's wants to maintain that the lie that's built around the organization. And, um, so it's on, uh, and what disturbs me most is corporations that are being, um, really, um, manipulated, um, around the name. You know, because the name is a great name. Yeah. It's a great cause. It's a great, you know, branding, if you will. You know, my ad days, you know, I would say, man, that's a great name. That's but, right. But, uh, you know, perception isn't always reality. Yeah. You know, that's also what we learned in advertising. You know, so you got to look under the hood to see what, what something really stands for and not be afraid to call it what it is. Because... It, that's what's going on today is there's so much shame if you don't agree with the name because they're, you know, they, they captured you with the name. Yeah. So if you disagree, 
you're disagreeing with the cause. That's right. Than disagreeing with what that organization is really doing. And and this is where I think as individuals we must take become responsible for educating ourselves. Um, I tend not to feed into political narratives or social narrative because of that very fact. It, it, it becomes so difficult because then you say this and you get you get dragged in this whole wave mm. that unintended consequences kind of thing. But you must educate, if you're watching or listening, it's important to educate yourself about what you're standing with and for mm. and don't feel the pressure of going with the crowd uh, because you want to make a stand on something because it may actually do more harm than good in the long run. Short term, it may feel good, but long term, and that's on all sides, by the way, because this technique is employed by the enemy using all kinds of things for that purpose. Good clarity there. So, Zamina uh, says, unhealthy families lead to unhealthy economies. Well said. That is correct, Zamina. Let's go to the next thing business. Um, and so our viewers and listeners are entrepreneurs that get this one, but they may not understand how it ties into the settlement culture. Could you explain that one to us, Oz? Well, business has such great influence because of the wealth that's in business. So there's a lot of power uh, and influence through business. Mm -hmm. And so when business is being utilized for unrighteousness, that unrighteousness multiplies in great ways. Conversely, if business is used for righteousness, it can have a great uh, influence. You know, over the last 10 years, I think of two U.S. businesses who are owned by Christians that probably had the biggest impact in a cultural issue. That would be Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby that stood up against the Supreme Court to require them to have, um, you know, a pill that would abort babies. And they fought it and they won. Of course, Chick-fil-A came under assault by the LGBT community. And uh, that kind of turned in their favor when the public stood for them knowing that they were not a racist organization. They just had a biblical worldview. And both of them stood their ground. Now, you're not going to find a church or, you know, a school or whatever, you, you, you know, being able to have that kind of influence. These were businesses. And so businesses have an opportunity to shape culture like nothing else. And um, so we need to realize as entrepreneurs, we have great influence. And as you go into countries, you have great influence when you're in business, uh, more undeveloped countries. If you come there from America and you have a business to bring to that place, you know, you're going to be able to come in there because of the business, not because of your faith. In fact, your faith can, you know, piggyback into that in a way that, you couldn't if you were just coming in there as a believer. Wow. So those who are watching and listening to this, entrepreneurs, particularly the biblical entrepreneurs, the members of the e-community, that uh, puts a huge responsibility uh, on you. 
uh, recognizing that you are a potential Chick-fil-A, you're a potential Hobby Lobby, and all of those businesses that have had great influence. Now, the reverse also is true, Oz. I mean, you can give us one or two examples of businesses that have done very well, but unfortunately uh, may have not been helpful to culture or society from a Christian worldview. Could you give us one or two examples? I hate to call out businesses, but I'm not sure, you know, I know there's a liability issue, but is there an example you can give us in a way that's, uh, that doesn't create any liability issues? Well, several years ago, we, we had uh, something that happened in America in which a publicly traded company called Enron was in the news. And they had a whistleblower inside the company that revealed that they were cooking the books. And um, what's interesting about that is the CEO of that company was a guy um, named um, oh God. Ken Lay. Ken Lay. Yeah. yeah. Christian, as a matter of fact, by his he, own profession. He was a professing Christian, and there was a quote by him that really expressed his faith. And I knew somebody who knew him personally and said, you know, it's unfortunate that Ken got caught up in that. He was not watching the shop the way he should have. And as a result, he was taken down with it. And uh, so, um, and he had a heart attack before he was about to go into prison. So here's an example where a believer who was not taking kind of the, the Bible talks about beware of your the condition of your flocks. Mm -hmm. And so he had too much hands off of a, a major business and he wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the in the hen's nest, if you will. And as a result, he got taken down and uh, his whole company got taken down. So that's a great warning. No matter how big or small your business is, you as the CEO or entrepreneur need to be in touch with every aspect of what that business, you can't delegate uh, the entire business to someone. Uh, you've got to stay in touch with your business and make sure it's staying on track to what God called you to do with that business. Wow. And by the way, in the, um, in the Kenron, in the Enron situation, uh, that led to a major negative impact in our uh, in one of our industries uh, in the uh, energy industry, uh, which led to a huge economic impact of the entire nation and even the globe. So here's one company that was so big that its failure created all kinds of ripple effects. Families, people lost millions of dollars. Matter of fact, I have a book coming out uh, called Essentials to Big Entrepreneurship, where I use Enron as an example of one of those businesses that unfortunately was now reflective of what it ought to be and it, it led to a huge catastrophe. So business has, if you look at, uh, not all, but a lot of major economic failures, many times it is an industry or a business that did not do what they ought to do when not more integral, or integral, which led to a failure in, in culture. A good example there, so biblical entrepreneurs, again, um, it is your responsibility as a, as a biblical entrepreneur as a kingdom business to truly reflect the heart of God in the marketplace. And it does come with a price. Let's talk about the price of that. You, you use Chick-fil-A, um, and you also use Hobby Lobby. It's not come without a cost. 
Uh, obviously, in the end, those two bills have done very well. However, if you look at their journey, I've read about them, and it's very clear that at different points of the way, I remember talking to, as a matter of fact, it was your conference, where I talked with the, um, one of the, uh, one of the uh, executives, one of the families of Hobby Lobby, and he talked about the various milestones that they had to make decisions that they knew that if it, didn't, if it was not favorably, it literally would have meant um, a catastrophe for them as a family and as a business. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, so that's real. So, so what, what is the price that these entrepreneurs need to be prepared for when it comes to making those kind of stands and, 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 and standing for the things that are right in the marketplace? Well, I think today, like never before, we've got such a toxic environment where people are supercharged with emotions about their causes. And um, the left is so, um, so uh, aggressive in their posture. And we've seen an aggressive media that's uh, no longer communicating truth, but only an agenda. And so we've got a totally different world than we have in the past. And so what we as believers need to be prepared for is that you take a stand on an issue, you're going to be attacked. Um, I was talking to my wife. We were talking about the fact that Revelation 13 is right around the corner. That's the chapter where you must take the mark of the beast. Now, just picture for a minute that uh, we have another outbreak, and that outbreak, the government, all of it, the liberals get in charge of the government, and they say, well, uh, you must take this, uh, this drug for that uh, disease. Uh, if you don't, you can't come into a public building. If you don't, you can't buy or sell. If you don't, you can't do this or that. And we have the technology today to put an implant in people's uh, bodies today. And just imagine that it's going to be positioned that, oh, this is for your benefit because it's going to keep you healthy and it'll keep those who aren't healthy away. I mean, there are a lot of scenarios that plays out. And so we need to realize that, you know, as culture begins to go more and more against Christ, against the foundations of what we all believe, we become more and more the minority unless there is an awakening in the nation. That's what we're all praying for, because that's the only solution to what we're seeing happen. There's got to be a change of heart. You never can convince people based on logic. It's going to have to be a move of God in our nation. And thankfully, God is raising up a lot of different groups, a lot of different armies in God's army that is seeking to be the remnant to make a difference in our country and in our world. Oh, wow. That's good stuff. Good stuff. A fun and exciting time to be uh, alive. Uh, with that, let's go to the next mountain, which is even as critical as the former. Again, I'm talking to Oz Hillman. He'll be uh, our, our keynote speaker at Nehemiah Week. And uh, he'll be talking about the seven months of culture and its implication in this era of COVID-19. 
and in relation to the growth through strategy. And today we talked about what exactly is a set of mountains so you can understand what it is and its implication. If you want to register for the conference, go to nehemiahweek.com, nehemiahweek.com. Uh, so let's talk about the mountain of government. What is that? What's the implication? Well, the implications of government is that the, the government is where laws are developed and enforced. And uh, what's interesting is you look at government today where uh, the more socialist agenda and the liberal agenda says certain laws don't need to be enforced, such, you know, such as immigration. You know, we don't need to protect our borders. That, and you have sanctuary cities, you know. You have lawlessness in cities where you now today you have mayors who are just refusing to provide uh, protection and uh, law and order in their cities because they have an agenda. So here you have government, which God birthed government. And it was designed to have a government that reflected righteousness. And so it's also a place where laws are developed. So as we move further and further away from God, we have people in legislation who have the ability to make laws that can be very destructive to the nation and the people in that nation. And, you know, we've often heard um, the statement don't ever waste a good crisis. You know, that first was coined by um, the guy that was the mayor of Chicago that was um, Rob Emanuel uh, with Obama. And uh, that's what they did. They tried to use a crisis in order to uh, have increased control over the people and to have more fear within the people so that the people could be controlled. And that's how socialism develops. You uh, give people something uh, out of fear, and then you use that as a means of control. And so government is so important for a nation. And, you know, if the U.S. government were to fall, you would see that impact all the nations of the world. And that's why we need godly leaders in government. I'm grateful that we have at least a remnant there that's standing the ground. But I would say that the next four months, what happens in the next four months of America will determine what the next 10 years are going to be like. And if the socialists win in our, in our uh, election, you can expect a country that's going to be shaped so differently than what we see today. Wow. The mountain of government, the importance of having righteous men and women in that space. Um, ah, my time. But, but I do want to ask you two questions on this as, uh, at the risk of the time. But let me go quickly. The first question is, so, so many people see government so corrupt, uh, particularly those internationally, that they don't see how Christians can be either in politics or in government. Could you address that real quick? Well, you'd have to uh, maybe have an interview with Daniel and say, you know, Daniel and Nehemiah, what, what do you think about that question? <laughs> and uh, I can't imagine it's any different for them than 
than uh, what was happening in their day, that the corruption was just as great. But you know, God used both those leaders in a very significant way when they stood their ground and they stayed vertical with God in their decisions rather than pandering. Sure, they could be thrown in the lion's den for their decision, but that's all part of standing for the culture. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Great examples. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that their government was worse than any other government today because you're dealing with a time time period that, that was just egregious. But the, the next question, let me take, bring it home a little bit, um, real quick. Um, there's, there's, a, there, there's a sense that uh, many particularly, uh, the liberals will say, liberal Christians, if I can use that term, will say, well, the problem is that many Christian conservatives feel the only way to be a Christian in politics, that you have to be a Republican. Can you address that for a little bit? I know I'm coming home here. Well, I think there's many strong believers in both parties, but I think ultimately every person has to reset. They have to get away from their tradition. They have to get away from what they've always done and look at every issue from which party is standing for what and make your decision on what you're going to align yourself with based on what's closer to the biblical worldview that we all should be believing in. And I find that that's really hard for certain people that have been raised in one tradition because historically this is what it stood for. And that's really that's really a trap, I think, because, you know, we have to narrow things down to the issues and try to put aside the history of things, even the history of where one party or another did something bad or, you know, was never for something. You know, maybe it's different today uh, if you look at it with fresh eyes. So I think that's the challenge for all of us to look at things purely based on the issues, what party is being representative of the Christian values. And and unfortunately, it becomes a lesser than, you know, which one's less (laughs) is less evil in terms of some of the decisions that have to be made. And, um, you know, we we live in such a toxic environment today that. You know, you've got to look, you know, when you look at Trump, you see all the personality flaws in him and you look at the other side and you see the flaws in that. But ultimately you say what's at the end of the day, if this person wins, how is it going to affect the Christian, the kingdom of God? If that party wins, is it going to be better or is it going to be worse purely on the uh, agenda or the the uh, policies that they have stated in what they believe in. Uh, awesome. The next one, we're almost there, guys. And we're talking to Oz Hillman. He'll be our, key, our keynote speaker at Nehemiah Week this year, August 15th through the, uh, August 10th through the 15th. Arts and entertainment. What does that mean? That mountain, what does that mean? And what's the implication? So much of the social uh, values of people is seen in the movies and entertainment 
that take place. And that's probably the number one mountain where um, the gay rights movement got the greatest influence. You see, one of the things they realized is that they were not winning the hearts of people by having these kinky parties or, or parades where they would flaunt their gayness. That didn't win people. And so what they decided to do was go into Hollywood and they would write scripts that would have gay people in those scripts that would be perceived as just normal part of society. They wouldn't show all the immorality associated with it. They would just relate them as gay people. And then they would do that in sitcoms. And then, uh, so in 1990s, the first woman kissed another woman on national television. So all of these things were designed to desensitize the public to that issue from being a moral issue. And the more they tried to piggyback on the civil rights movement as a civil issue, that's when they began to win their cause. And so, but it's always been a moral issue. In fact, their book called After the Ball that came out in 1987, there's a quote in the book that says, we know for all intents and purposes that no one is born gay. It's a product of sociological factors, but we will never admit that. So basically they say, we're just going to lie about it because we know we can't win the civil argument with that argument. Because if, if it's a preference, if your social um, attitudes and behavior is based on preference, that can't be built around a civil argument. So they wow. knew that was a losing argument. So they had to change it so that it became a civil argument. And once they were able to convince the public that it was a civil issue and not a moral issue, that's when they won. Wow. Wow. And unfortunately, um, around the world, our government, the U.S. government, has become one of the major pushers of imposing it upon other government and tying U.S. funding to it. I mean, that is the saddest thing in the world. I mean, you know, why would you want that in your hand? Um, and, and it's one thing, be whatever you want, but don't make others, don't don't force it upon others. And so that's a challenge, uh, great, great, great thoughts there. Um, and last but not least, by the way, this is why we need a lot of Christians who are committed to go into this space of arts entertainment so you can show the difference. Now, uh, Oz, before I go to the next thing, we should, the last uh, point is um, there is a concern, however, by many um, people in the, gay, on the, on the, in the gay movement or uh, millennials and others who, um, who feel that, uh, others even what we call liberal Christians, who may feel that one of the issues is that the, the church, those of us who are conservative, that our tone, our language, our positioning has been very uh, offensive and, and sometimes divisive and many times hateful when it comes to gays. Could you address that a little bit? Well, I agree with that. I think that um, the church has wrongfully made that the unpardonable sin. When we, Whenever we're talking about that issue, I like to talk about, well, sin is adultery. Sin is pornography. Sin is this. Sin is that. Pride is sin. You know, God just doesn't like sin. 
he he likes the sinner, he loves the sinner, but he doesn't like the sin. So we we always have to uh, present that issue with that we don't have anything uh, negative or you know have anything against gay people as a people. It's just when that people begins to dictate the two percent dictate to the ninety eight percent that we must believe what you believe and we must change our laws based on what you believe. That's where we get into the problem. And so it's a fine line between setting a boundary with a a group, you know, and holding to a biblical view and doing it with grace and doing it with bridge building to that community, which is very difficult because they tend to be more aggressive about it uh, themselves. Uh, because that issue is an issue of rejection. And so the spirit of rejection comes through those people in a way that becomes very radicalized often. And so many immature believers don't know how to deal with that. And so they become reactive as well. Mm, Good insight. Thank you so much. Zamina, thank you. You've been with us the whole way. I know that more of you guys are watching. Don't be shy. Share your comments. I'm almost wrapping up here. Questions or comments. Uh, you know, Zamina uh, says people have to reset their mindset and build a new mindset by looking at things with fresh eyes. Uh, good insight. Recording to what you said earlier. As last but not least, as media, what does that mean? What's the implication? Wow, not, there hasn't been a mountain that's more changed than the media in the last ten years. You know. Um, I remember watching CNN where I thought it was pretty good news, but today it's pretty much a propaganda machine that anything against um, our current president is all they're about and they won't have anything on there unless it's negative. And we see that within uh, many of the mainstream media outlets that uh, gone are the days where there's journalism that's, uh, you know, reporting truth unbiased. And unfortunately, that's the place we are living in and we are having to deal with it. So everybody has to watch news with a very discerning eye now and ask the question, is that really true? You know, you just don't take it for face value. No matter where it's coming from, you have to have a filter more so than ever before on asking the question, is that really true? And I think that also in the media, one of the things that's happening on the internet is that there are people that are creating these fake news uh, graphics and fake news stories that have no truth at all to them. Uh, The liberals can create one, even conservatives can create one to make the other side look bad. And I often say to my wife, when she sends me something, I said, now, is that really true? And, uh, you know, I said, we might want to buy into it because, oh, yeah, look at that. But we've we've had to learn to say, now, is that really true? And there are sources on the Internet that can, you know, tell you whether something's really true or not. And uh, just recently, my wife had something that sent it to me. And uh, I agree. I thought, you know, it was something that maybe posted. Well, it turned out that it wasn't true. And um, 
So we as believers really have to be very conscious of fake news on both sides of the fence when it's trying to um, position itself against the other side. Mm. And, and I, I do appreciate the fact that um, as a bridge builder myself, the fact that you are touching on both sides, because I think one of the issues um, is sometimes when we, whether it's fake news, whether it's uh, whatever the issue might be, um, there's a perception, right or wrong, that many times we as leaders, uh, I'm dealing with the, lead, the Christian leaders, not Christian leaders, that we tend to push only one agenda, though that may be right, right? You know, the, versus being that facilitator of lifting up the word of God and letting that be the filter and allowing people in the process that will we become credible sources. And I appreciate you are laying it down so that without compromising what the truth is, while at the same time not being agenda driven, because we need to be trusted sources as Christians, leaders, Christian leaders, the media is what they're going to do. But Christian leaders need to be trusted sources so that you know that I'm giving you a framework that allow God to convict your heart. For for could you um in terms of media because media is such a powerful tool and I appreciate what you said. It can be used by those who agree with us bad and those who don't agree with us bad. What's the importance? What is the responsibility of us as Christian leaders? as to what you just said. I mean, you do that with your wife, but all of us need to do that, not just in what we consume, but also what we share. Yes, I think it's just being true to truth, you know, being committed to what truth is, even if it's truth that we don't like, you know, and uh, being able to own it and being able to admit when we're wrong. So many leaders have a difficulty admitting when they're wrong, you know. If you post something that's, you find it's really not true, you need to go on there and say, okay, it's not true. You know, I, I was mistaken and uh, own it. Mm, well said, well said. As we've come to the end here, thank you again. Uh, as we close, do me one favor. I got two more last, gonna ask you one, help me sell this week. So people are watching and they've heard you talk and they wanna know us. So why should I come? You know, what can I expect from your session? Help me sell the week. What would you say to them? Well, you've put together a group of leaders that have expertise in so many different areas. And as believers in the marketplace, we all need to be equipped to really live out the calling, to get tools that can help us achieve more success and to be more effective as communicators and culture shapers. So this is a tremendous week where people have the privilege to access wisdom and knowledge from people that you brought together. So I would encourage everybody to participate and, you know, glean from those who have gone before you that have uh, expertise. Awesome. And again, if you want to do that, go to NehemiahWeek.com, NehemiahWeek.com. I'll give you a chance to register and join Oz Hillman and many others during that week of August 10th through the 15th. Oz, many people are watching and listening. Uh, two things. One, how did they get in touch with you? Two, what's the first step of them truly becoming engaged in the Seven Mountain culture? What, would you, what, what advice would you give them? 
Well, I would go to our website, todaygodisfirst.com, todaygodisfirst.com, and that will allow people to start with our devotional. And that devotional will be kind of the uh, tip of the spear of communication from our ministry to access all the different things that we do. And that's probably the best way you can do that. And then I would also like to offer some a free resource to your people in addition to the devotional that will help them apply biblical faith to their work. And it's a booklet uh, that I did called, Are You a Biblical Worker? And uh, it's a 50 true-false self-assessment tool that's a, a digital tool. And just go to freebiblicalworker.com. That's freebiblicalworker.com. And that'll be a tool that you can use in your quiet time as well as even in a small group with your associates to really unpack what the Bible says about key issues in your work-life call. Wow. Take advantage of that, guys, and and, uh, begin your journey today of being an influencer and a change agent, as Oz will put it. Oz, we look forward to having you, man. Thank you so much. You've been a gift and a blessing, and thank you for what you've done and the legacy that you've been able to lay out for us in the marketplace. Thank you, Patrice. Well, don't you guys leave yet because I want to pray for you. And then there's a video I want you to watch uh, about more about the conference. But but uh, if you love what you've heard, go to NehemiahEcommunity.com. There you can uh, learn how we can come alongside you, provide you with training, with coaching, with access to capital, and allow you to join this community where we can transform the world together and be a part of what Oz just talked about, of the seven mountains of influence, particularly in this area of business. That is the mountain that we call to operate in. Uh, With that said, let me pray for you. May the Lord bless you. Uh, May the Lord enable you to steward those talents his place under your care. And may he enable you to steward them in such a way that one day you can hear, you'll hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant, You've been faithful over a few things. He'll now make you ruler over much. God bless you. Don't you leave. Watch this video and see you at Nehemiah Week. Nehemiah Week is an annual event designed to equip entrepreneurs and leaders from around the world to inspire and to honor marketplace leaders for their accomplishments and what they're doing to model Christ in the marketplace. God is doing incredible things at Nehemiah Week. Ladies and gentlemen, God has called us to be a light for him, to be an example for him, to be a model for him so that as others see us, not hear us, but see us, they can see a model of Christ. Yeah, each year at Nehemiah Week, we we gather uh, the, the nations. Our vision is to transform the marketplace with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, one entrepreneur at a time. We have learned uh, to do business uh, in a godly way. Uh, I will actually spread this to our church as well. Through the course of Nehemiah Week includes information around um, principles of biblical entrepreneurship, so really looking at biblical economics. What we've learned this week is, is about training on Nehemiah 
uh, project is about training and then coaching and then accessing capital. Nehemiah gave me God's vision. Really impacts the way that I see doing business. Nehemiah, we not only gives birth to new ideas, it connects us with resources and relationships that make them possible. So what we want to do is not just affect here in the U.S., we want to take this curriculum all over the world. Whatever it is, the question is, what impact will this have on others? It's something that's going to change lives. So I'm ready to use whatever I have for the benefit of the kingdom of God. I believe that the nations are going to shape because of this week. Biblical entrepreneurship takes a stand to say we are going to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in the marketplace.